Welcome back to World Beat. I'm George Collins. We are sitting here with Javon Bird. And Javon, there, there's a long history of these practices, these traditional practices, whatever folks want to use, whatever term, here on the American continents, especially as you've noted in the first segment in connection with slavery. You've taught many seminars on the role of these practices in black resistance, starting all the way from when the uh, first slave sets foot on the continents here. Mm. And I find it interesting because not just, I'm not just talking about the American United States context, but I'm actually reading right now. It's called a Brazil, a biography. Mm-hmm. And as, as I don't need to tell you, but listeners might know Brazil is very, I find so many similarities between the U S and Brazil in, in a lot of different ways, but certainly in terms of the legacy of slavery and, and the impacts it's still having. So there's a lot of implications for that nation as well, but talk about what, what is the history of these practices being used on the, in the Americas and in particular with slave resistance? So in the Americas in general, um, you know, Haiti was definitely, when we think about Haiti, we think about the um, impact that Voodoo had to the point where the United States had a effort through one of their first media efforts, actually, to suppress African um Africanisms in the United States. So, I mean, of course, there was already an effort there in general. But after, um, after what happened in Haiti, you know, you started seeing like a portrayal of just like, oh, hey, voodoo's evil, voodoo's bad until, you know, in the 1900s when we did have, um, actual movies and videotapes and whatnot. And you start seeing like, hey, you know, the voodoo dolls, oh, there's some, this person will do something bad to you and whatnot. And, you know, when you look at voodoo, because there's a um, there's a concept in Yoruba practice called Odu, which are you know which are um, basically representations of the Rumole, um, which are like heavenly figures or guides or whatnot, right? And so within the Odu Ifa, and there's about 256 in the Ifa. There's about um, 16 in Aaron and what? Um, let's say 17, about 17 in Aaron Dilogun. And these Odu speak about you know honestly speak about like the secrets of life, right? So then when we think about Udu, then we think about the word voodoo, right? Voodoo and whatnot like that. You know, it's a practice that of studying God, basically, of understanding herbs, of understanding healing, of understanding drumming, of understanding how to work in harmony with each other in order to stay in alignment with ourselves and stay in alignment with nature. So you have this practice that gets turned into you know, that gets a horrible media rap for being about evil or hurting other people. And it's really um, disheartening that this continues on, even in the African-American community. We have people saying, hey, you know, that voodoo, hey, be careful about that. Without understanding that the real reason why you look at it in that negative route is be- a way is because Africans were able to use voodoo to overcome the white enslavers or to overcome, you know, European nations or whatnot like that, France. So then, you know, you got the same concept in Haiti. You know, they have very, um, they have characters that, um, that are still intertwined with the Risha. Like you got the martial art hero, Besoro. You got, um, Ganga Zumbi and Ganga Zumba, you know, um, who were also great, um, freedom fighters who are also into African spirituality. And you see how pre- um, spirituality, African spirituality across the Caribbean, 
also led to a lot of fighting. I mean, what I mean by fighting is revolting against these systems. Because, you know, if you remember at that time, Africans were banned from reading. So if you're getting told that, hey, you know, be um, a slave should be good to their master, or you're getting told that, okay, hey, you know, the position that you're in is actually ordained by God, that's very different than if you're connected to an, um, to a spirituality where your ancestors told you, oh, you know, you can you can be free, or you 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 have a connection to another reality, right? So I think that. That's why also here in the United States, African culture is or African spirituality is starting to grow because people are starting to say, hey, I don't have to do this. I can do it this way instead. Mm -hmm. And so what does some of this resistance look like in practice at this time? Um, I I know you've told stories about folks who are able to like meet in the swamp, right, because they're confident that the animals ain't going to get them while they're Mm -hmm. down there. What are some of the the organizing yeah. tactics uh, in places like Haiti that revolved around these practices? You know, divination to let you know about certain things, like to let you know, okay, is this the right time? You know, they used um, they used nature to figure out if it was the right time for them to fight back. Um, ways of healing yourself. You know, there were herbs and medicines that people were able to um, utilize through their practice and even get told by, um, you know, certain using certain spiritual medicines to, um, to figure out the herbs on their land at that area, right? So that's important. Um, the music, drums in general can actually speak the language, um, various African languages. So the Yoruba culture, they have, it's a very tonal language, almost like three tones, do re me, right? And so the drummers actually utilize that and they play. And so when they're playing, um, you know, when the drummers are playing, um, they're able to, you know, they're able to also speak to Arisha, but they can also speak to each other. So that was also, um, in the Jimmy Co- um, Kato, um, rebellion in 1739, South Carolina. That's exactly what they used. They used, um, they used the ability to be able to hear the drums speak to each other to actually know when it was time for them to fight against their slave masters. So there's a plethora of different, um, uses that African spirituality or African indigenous thought had on um, um, the benefits that they have for African people and the resilience in their fight to become be free. And so it seems to me like this suppression of these practices, the impetus comes from a number of dis- different fronts. On the one mm-hmm. hand, it is the fact that this is, in a practical sense, being used as, a, as an organizing wedge, as a way yeah. to get people to fight back. There is also the constant stigma associated with anything coming from the continent at this time, both from a political aspect and a spiritual aspect. And it seems like both in the presence of these practices as a resistance tool and also the counter forces to them really seems like a dichotomy that hasn't really gone away. Like what are some of the effects of that that are still felt today, even all these centuries later? I think that, um, I would say that it here's the thing within the American complex, we also have um, subcultures and also the subgroups who've been affected by it in different ways. So I think that while in American, like, especially like in the dominant culture, right? 
that which is associated with old is something that they're moving away from, right? Because even on an oppressive level, you know, a lot of white folks don't even like the idea of thinking, damn, did our ancestors really just kill all these indigenous people and enslave all these African people? No, we're not trying to be down with that. So let's get away from this old stuff and let's go to a new like type of world, right? Mm -hmm. Or new modernism. But a lot of African Americans, actually, I think the opposite is happening. Because for us, it wasn't necessarily our past, which was as vulgar as or as um, harsh or oppressive as what we're facing now. So I think there's a lot of people who are actually trying to reach back in order to understand what a society looked like with African or black autonomy, right? And figure out, okay, how can we take from that past and build or carve ourselves out a new future? So I think that's kind of what I've seen in a lot, but not in a lot of the African-American community. I will say that there's still a huge segment that are very, um, a segment of people who are very much so tied to, okay. And I think a lot of those are, those are the people who just don't think anyway, you know, um, who are kind of tied into saying, Hey, you know, um, yeah, but I'm Christian because that's just what everybody does and maybe have never asked themselves, okay, well, what, what did African people do beforehand? So there's that group, but then there's another group that's actually asking themselves those hard questions. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's actually a great segue into something else I was thinking about, which is we've already talked about this, this stigma against these mm-hmm. practices in particular. And I think the impulse for a lot of folks might be to say, well, it's because of the black church, um, which might, might be true in certain parts of the country. Mm-hmm. But as you pointed out, like there's, there's a lot of different cultures that go on here. And like a, a black church in Brooklyn ain't the same as a black church in Atlanta, right? Which ain't the same as a black church out here in Seattle. Right, right. So it's um it seems to no. me like they're there they're, and you also pointed out too that there is not just a current intersection of different faiths, but even historically, like the fact that uh in, in the case of Haitian Catholicism, a lot of those uh figures are incorporated as the saints um sometimes more for practical reasons of disguises again down in brazil it's the same thing that a lot of it was the same tactic but then i also wonder too about something that was uh, was brought up in another podcast i was listening to about the whole idea of like afrofuturism and like mm-hmm. why, why is that such a big thing and one of the points that was made was that if you take a look at when American citizens are surveyed about like the state of the country and generally speaking, white folks tend to be more optimistic about it than black folks. And the, the reasons for that actually, I think are really fascinating because what white people will do is compare how things are now to how they were in the past. Whereas a lot of times black respondents will compare things, how they are now to how they potentially could be. And that there is more of a forward-thinking thing, and that's where this impulse for Afrofuturism comes from. I wonder, you know, and you've just made some allusions to it here, too, the whole idea of not wanting to turn to the past because things were so horrible, right? Um, I, I guess I'm saying all this to set up, like, where does this stigma come from exactly? That as there, even amidst a rising tide of people wanting to dig into their heritage and really claiming black identity with a certain amount of, um, of pride and gratitude. 
there still seems to be that the the spiritual element for those that are inclined is still really taboo in a lot of ways. What what do you think yeah. really drives that impulse? Fear, of course. If you've been indoctrinated with the idea that if you don't worship Jesus or you don't worship God in the way that the Bible tells you to, that you'll go to hell for eternity, that'll make a lot of people say, hey, even though logically I understand, I've been conditioned to think this way. And I'm afraid to go against that. You know, a lot of people who are who come from Christian backgrounds who do adopt African spirituality, I'd say that they're even more courageous than I am. Because I never really believed in the concept in the Christian concept of heaven and hell. I didn't grow up with that indoctrination. So someone who was indoctrinated by that it then decides to go against that, that's definitely a psychological that's definitely going to be, you know a psychological just milestone for them to even be able to make that leap. And so, you know, me personally, I've never had to make that leap. So I don't really understand, but I've seen people who were Christian when they finally, that moment when they finally let go of Jesus, they start crying. And I'm like, and all I was going, all right, why are you crying? And I'm like, because I know I got to let go of Jesus. and I'm just, and you know, I don't really understand um, fully. I've just been able to just empathize, but I'm, but I can definitely imagine that that's intense because that indoctrination. Um, you know, the African community, American community. What we did was all of our deep levels of spirituality, praise, our desire to praise, we put it into the church, and so that's where actually a lot of the, most Africanisms. If you want to find most Africanisms in the African-American community, you go to the church, to a real black church, you know, and then you'll find and you'll see the Africanisms, you know, any any um, any ethnographic research who wants to really study black Americans like black Americans in their most African form should go to the church. Mm-hmm. You know, for that research, right? And so to rip yourself off, it's almost like I'd hate to say it this way. I know lots of people probably look at me in the podcast and say, how dare you? It's almost like someone who's an addict of something. Yes, I said an addict. Like, you know, you got you're reliant on some sort of drug or even alcohol to give you a feeling that you're kind of missing out on or whatnot. And then the, and then, oh gosh, this is harsh. And then you being told that, hey, you know, I understand why you're doing this, but the better way of getting that feeling is actually through this. Maybe you're doing it because you don't do music anymore, so maybe you should do that music or you should do this or things that actually make you happy, right? It still takes a lot for you to get off of that, right? Even though it was really just, um, I don't want to say pretend, but it was just like a way for you to feel, even if it wasn't the exact feeling, to feel something similar to what you were looking for. But sometimes peeling yourself off of that to actually engage yourself in what you were looking at can be hard. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, and that makes me think about how, as we are talking about confronting the slave legacy, you know, in a really transparent way that ain't really been done before in the history of the what's now the United States. And especially with things like the 1619 Project from a couple of years ago, if you remember that. And 
yet is, as you pointed out, and some other scholars have pointed out, there's a real there's a real marriage between the spread of Christianity in black communities and the uh, legacy of colonialism. And yeah. not always, like you said, some folks, it was a matter of like adapt or die, quite literally. Right. But that, to me, it would seem like would be a much diffi- more difficult thing to really drill down into. Because yeah. it's one thing to examine the slavery legacy when one's detached from it. Not detached as in... Uh, like, like I should, I guess I shouldn't use that word because that's often used as like, I had nothing to do with it. But I mean, like when when it's not something that you show up for every Sunday, you know, like it's not as right. deeply ingrained with it. Whereas when you're asking people to confront the foundations of Black Christianity in the United States, that that starts treading on some hallowed ground for a lot of folks. <laughs> I mean, that gets real dicey. Yeah, it definitely gets dicey, and I think that's. Um... You know, that's, that's that's just that journey that some people are going to make and some aren't. Well, and it also strikes me that we are talking about the United States, but this is also true in, you know, we've mentioned Brazil. Even though on the continent, I mean, I know you've talked about some of the... Recent- oh, definitely on the continent. Like, they're only like about, I, I think they say like 10%, maybe a little bit less than that, of the Nigerian population that actually openly practices their traditional religion. And even there, that as I understand it, so much of that seems to be concentrated in Yoruba as opposed to, (laughs) as opposed to, you know, the, um, the Christianization of the Igbos, the house of course, a very devout Muslim. Yo, the Igbos, you know, I was just watching a documentary on it and I've seen it with my own eyes. Like they'll straight up say, nah, Igbos, if you want, it's far and few in between that you'll find an Igbo traditional practitioner. The Yorubas, and also, this is jacked up, but I'm not jacked up, but this is a, a, an unfortunate truth. Socially, I mean, let's just say by our standards of today, I'm not going to say they were or not, right? But many many anthropologists have noted that Yoruba society was more developed than Igbo society as far as social and structurally. So that's why a lot of the Igbos did actually jump on Christianity because it gave them a certain social power above other Nigerian or quote-unquote Nigerian tribes at that time, mm-hmm. you know, be, you know, with the Christianity. So you see that legacy within Igbos to this day, Nigerian. And interestingly enough, they have a system of Ifa. They call it Afa, but they divine using, um, using the same divination tools that Yoruba's divine with as well. Well, and it's certainly known that... Um... I know it's a stereotype that Igbos tend to be real go-getters, real gunners, right? And it's it ain't an accident that you look at Nigeria's business elite, and it pretty much is entirely Igbos <laughs> in a lot of ways. And yeah, so, it, thank you. It, it, thank it would, you. It would make sense that the the whole idea of using Christianity to to further goals like that, and I, and I don't mean this to like in a nefarious way, but it's just it, <laughs> it it goes it goes hand in hand with with that philosophy. And here's the most fascinating thing about that Igbo legacy, though, right? While they were the first, like, while they were some of the strongest and, like, most open to Christianity, that was only in Africa. In the the Americas, though, Igbos were actually some of the most, one of the most feared groups because they, because their traditions a lot of times forbid them to bow to any God except their own traditional one. 
So you had Ebo, that's why you have Ebo landing here off of the coast of Georgia, where the Ebos looked on um, looked on the Americas, and they said no, and they all can't went into that water and drown themselves. Walked into that because they they because they'd rather you know they'd rather die than be someone's slave. Um, you know they got a whole Ebo dance in Haiti. Um, for Voodoo, it's a whole rhythm or whatnot, and that's like one of the most powerful dances of the Ebos literally ripping their chains off and stuff, right? You have in Virginia, as I mentioned, the dismal swamps and everything. At one point, the majority of the slaves that were brought to Virginia were coming straight from um, the Bight of Biafra. So they're coming straight from, so there you have a huge Igbo Nigerian populace there. You know, it's interesting to say, like, even um, when we think about Ifa or Afa, a lot of African-Americans who are attracted to Yoruba Ifa probably are descended from Igbo Afa people. <laughs> you know, and when you look at that from that, like, you know, when you look at it from that anthropological view, it's just really fascinating. It's really fascinating to see how on the continent, yes, there was this going on, but the, those who were taken were actually very fierce defenders of their African identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing over on the eastern part of the continent, too. Um, you know, I've I've spent time in Kenya and talked to a lot of folks from that region over there. And, and there's a very similar dynamic where there are certain tribal groups that are highly associated with uh, those those more. Um, I don't know if traditional is the word I should use. I kind of hate that word in a lot of ways because it seems really loaded. Yeah, we'll, we'll just say the uh, the indigenous practices over there. Um, and that. you know, and I think about like in Kenya, you got one of the groups is the Kamba, right? And and if you start digging into like Kamba stereotypes, like that you get in yeah. media, especially for the women, right? It's all going to be, they're just a bunch of these crazy nymphos who are going to put these black magic curses on you if, um, if you them off or whatever. And, yeah. and, and it is true that among, among Kambas and, um, and also down in neighboring Tanzania with some of the groups down there, there's a relatively high retention of those traditional ways, of those old ways like that. And, and this to me, I mean, this is, uh, it's heartbreaking in a lot of ways that it doesn't, even if you go back to the source and even if you go all around the world, this stigma oh. still seems to exist. In fact, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this. My impression is like the U S seems to be one of the places where it's actually gaining the most traction out of anywhere else. Um, yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I've had Nigerian priests tell me straight up. You guys in America, like you found more than a lot of us do out here. They said that to me. I said, ouch. That's, I don't know how I feel about that, but okay. <laughs> you know, to the point where they're like, yeah, um, yeah. You know, and it's really interesting to just look at it from that perspective and understand that, oh, okay, this is reality. Yeah. You know, so definitely, um, yeah. Well, and certainly when you got, uh, when you got public figures like Rihanna who, you know, gets ISIS tattooed across her chest. I mean, that's uh, mm-hmm. that's definitely a good sign. Mm-hmm. And now we've really done a done a lot of framing on kind of the history and where the stigma comes from. Next, I want to move to how we start breaking that and a lot of the work you've been doing in that respect. So that's where we're heading in our next segment. Stick with us on World Beat. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 